So the title of tonight's talk is Mindfulness in Action. It's really interesting because I thought of different topics like moving with mindfulness, but I think mindfulness in action is consistent with what we've been doing here. And so the intention, my intention for this talk is obviously to support the yogis that are in the process of this life as my practice. And I think a big part of that is this continuity of mindfulness uh, supported by wisdom or wisdom supported by mindfulness and this idea of cultivating wisdom, coming up with a way of how can we be more mindful uh, throughout our daily activities. So starting off with bare attention, and I think I mentioned the other night when I talked about mindfulness, I mentioned some aspects of that a little bit, but I think it's important to talk about it some more. And I want to read from, from, this, from this particular book. It's um, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, which mindfulness is. Only things well examined, only things well examined by mindfulness can be understood by wisdom, but not confused ones. A specimen of research that is to be examined with the help of a microscope has first to be carefully prepared, cleaned, freed from extraneous matter, and firmly kept under the lens. In a similar way, the bare object to be examined by wisdom is prepared by bare attention. It cleans the object of investigation from the impurities of prejudice and passion. It frees it from alien admixtures and from points of view not pertaining to it. It holds it firmly before the eye of wisdom. By slowing down the transition from receptive to the active phase of the perceptual or cognitive process, thus giving a vastly improved chance for close and dispassionate investigation. Another aspect they talk about, and I mentioned this the other day when I talked about mindfulness, is bare attention first allows things to speak for themselves without interruption by final verdicts pronounced too hastily. Bare attention gives them a chance to finish their speaking, and one will thus get to learn that, in fact, they have much to say about themselves which formerly was mostly ignored by rashness or was drowned in the inner and outer noise in which ordinary man normally lives. Because bare attention sees things without the narrowing and leveling effect of habitual judgments, it sees them ever anew, as if for the first time. Therefore, it will happen with progressive frequency that things will have something new and worthwhile to reveal. Patient pausing in such an attitude of bare attention will open wide horizons to one's understanding, obtaining thus an seemingly effortless way results which were denied to the strained efforts of an impatient intellect. Owning to a rash and habitual limiting, labeling, misjudging, and mishandling of things, important sources of knowledge often remain closed. Western humanity in particular will have to learn from the East to keep the mind longer and more frequently in a receptive but keenly observing state, a mental attitude which is cultivated by the scientist and the research worker, but should increasingly become common property. This attitude of bare attention will 
by persistent practice proved to be a rich source of knowledge and inspiration. And so when you think about the instructions as we have been moving along in this retreat, the first day we were talking about the body and being in the body in terms of, uh, of mindfulness, uh, four foundations of mindfulness, starting with the body. So this idea of not getting self-preferences or these, um, how do I want to say, today as we, we talked about um, states of mind, and as you may recall, we talked about the mind with lust, the mind without lust, the mind with aversion, the mind without aversion, the mind with delusion, the mind without delusion. That is really important that, that by this bare attention, we start to see when there's these admixtures, when there's these states of mind that block or hinder our ability to see what's there. And so the practice of bare attention is just really as simple as just allowing things to speak for themselves. So when we're being aware of the body and the sensations in the body, it's, it's just that, you know, contemplating the body in the body. And whatever's there, you just notice it without having to have an opinion or as things are arising, there's no need to make something go away or to bring something into existence or to interfere with the process of perception, but to keep, to stay in that, uh, as I talked about, that space between stimulus and response, that we keep elongating that, that space through the practice of bare attention so that we can actually see things anew, see things freshly. And so we're, we need that in every activity that we are engaged in, but specifically when we're doing the walking and the sitting meditation when we're not so actively engaged in activities so that we can actually just pay attention to the bare um, awareness or bare attention. And so moving on to the ideas, we talked about the body. And once again, um, I want to start off by being really clear about where this comes from. And the Satipatthana Sutta, this is one Interpretation, and what monks is right mindfulness? Herein a monk dwells contemplating the body in the body, ardent, clearly comprehending, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief concerning the world. He dwells contemplating, and then goes into feelings and, and mind states, but you get the gist of it. The gist of it is that we have to have this ardency or this diligence. We have to have this clearly comprehending or having some information about what it is we're doing and we have to obviously have mindfulness as well. And so when we think about clear comprehension, it talks about, and this is part of the, the body con contemplation, it talks about clearly comprehending our activities, our physical activities. And it says mindfulness, and so one of the practices we talk about is mindfulness of our postures. And so today we started talking about when you're sitting and then becoming more aware of standing up and then, and then some of us have been standing up 
when we when we have lethargy or when when there's sleepiness. So we've been really um, encouraging us to do standing meditation. And so mindfulness of postures, which is part of um, clear comprehension of the body, it says mindfulness of the postures. The body can assume four basic postures, walking, standing, sitting, and lying down, with a variety of other positions marking the change from one to another. Mindfulness of the postures focuses full attention on the body in whatever position it assumes. When walking, to be aware of walking. When standing, to be aware of standing. When sitting, to be aware of sitting. When lying down, to become aware of lying down. When changing postures, to be aware of changing postures. The contemplation of the postures illuminates the impersonal nature of the body. It reveals that the body is not a self or the, or the belonging of a self, but merely a configuration of living matter subject to the directing influence of volition. And so as you may recall that it's hard to be in one position for a really long time. As a matter of fact, even if you were able to sit for two or three hours, you probably have to get up to go to the bathroom. And so there's always this need. The body has a mind of its own. And so we're moving through these postures, and that part of the continuation of the practice is to now use the bare awareness and to really contemplate the fact, and, and you hear my instructions, sit and know you're sitting. And I would imagine that if I was in the audience when, when I was a yogi, I would probably say, of course I'm sitting. But what, what the instruction is to sit and know you're sitting. Not to think that you're sitting, but to feel the body and to see the posture and to be in the experience in the body, the body in the body. So it's not thinking about, oh, I'm sitting. It's feeling the body as it's sitting. And so that's just the bare sensation of sitting. You know, where, is, where are the touch points? And so even though that seems really simple and obvious, that we can practice in a way where we're with what is arising in the immediacy of experience. That we start to understand that, okay, that's a simple instruction, but it's powerful. And that each time we do it, we get a little bit more sensitivity, a little more alertness that, okay, I'm sitting. And then some of us, we're sitting and, and it gets too painful, we get sleepy, we stand up. So now we can expand the practice to really think about, okay, there's the, there's the intention to move. Even if we're moving because there's, there's um, too much pain in the leg or whatever, or we're going to stand up because we feel sleepy, that can we intend, okay, I'm going to stand up. And then they're standing up. But I guarantee you that's probably not that simple. Because some of us may have some ideas about whether we should be standing or not. May even feel like, well, I'm not going to stand. Because I don't want people to know that I'm sleepy or whatever. Who knows? But the reality is, the body's saying, stand, dude. Because <laughs> there's some pain here. Or we're sleepy. You want to keep us awake? Stand up. But because those admixtures get in there and the interpretation of what's going on gets in the way. So it's really a simple practice that if we can just notice through the day uh, that we're sitting and then know we're going to go from sitting to standing up and from standing up to walking and to walking to whatever we're going to do. 
And even that is in the suttas. I won't read it, but it talks about when you extend your hand, you know, know that. When you're drinking tea, drink tea. Know you're drinking tea. It gets so um, systemic that it even talks about going to the bathroom. And when you're going to the bathroom, know you're going to the bathroom. If you're doing a number one, knowing you're doing a number one. <laughs> if you're doing a number two, know you're doing a number two. Now, we can go on and on, but I won't get personal <laughs> with that. But you get, you get my drafts. So this is the practice, and, and, and this is, and I'll talk about this is the domain, the, the domain of practice. Now, in this process, it's easy to do that because we're in a retreat setting, and, we, and everything is set up, structured, so that you can do this. Outside of your yogi jobs, you don't really have a lot of responsibility other than to be present and to be mindful. And so just to notice that the body is going through these postures all day long. Now you notice I didn't notice, I didn't mention lying down. Because that usually doesn't happen until the end of the day or if you go take a nap. But that happens. And then when you lie down, you gotta stand to walk. And so just understanding, so even though this seems simple, it's important to understand that. And so Obviously, what will happen is because we don't have this habit of mind to do this. Now you'll see that there's a lot of movement with the body that, that you have no control over. It just happens. And you might find yourself, it's interesting, and, and I think this was hilarious when I was doing a three-month retreat. I don't know how many of you have done a three-month retreat, but you basically have a schedule that's the same for like 80-something days. And after every sitting, somebody would walk out and look at the schedule. <laughs> and, I, and I have to wonder how many times that happens because the body just takes them there. And they say, okay, I'm here. I might as well look and see what's here. But oftentimes, a lot of our life is not spent um, consciously. It's just a habit, a process of habits. And this is what this contemplation is, is saying is, you know, the body is impersonal. You can't stop it from having to go to the bathroom. You can't stop it from needing to move. You can't stop it when you want it to move, and it can't. So we understand. So on an intellectual level, even if we get it intellectually, and this is the key that we've been stressing, and I want to continue to stress that, it's the intention to be aware of the postures. Just like it's the intention to be aware of the body and the body, the body and the breath. It's the intention to be aware of you know, feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It's the intention to know when the mind has lust and when it doesn't have lust, when it has aversion and it doesn't have inversion, when it's deluded or confused or it has clarity or wisdom or understanding. Just knowing those, those little things is just forming the intention. It's forming the intention to direct loving kindness to ourselves and others. It's forming the intention to use the compassion. And so it's really interesting because even in this process of me giving this talk, it's, it's, it's like um, practicing what I preach, so clear comprehension of, okay, so I'd ask myself, okay, so what's my intention? Why am I giving this talk? And of course, if you want to get really philosophical on my drive here, I was saying, why am I going to here? Why am I teaching? Now, you, you might say, well, you know, why, 
why did you ask yourself that question? Of course, you know you're teaching, you're committed to it. But like I said, the mind has a mind of its own. And as Narayan said, to ask these questions is really important. And so I was asking myself, well, why am I teaching? I came here. Well, I'm coming here because um, for the love of the Dhamma, but mainly because Narayan asked me to. <laughs> and she's my teacher. And, and she says, you know, I, was, I learned a long time ago, when your teacher asked you to teach, you teach. And they were even strict with me when I first started teaching. They said, even if nobody shows up, you have to teach, George. <laughs> and so it was just lineage. But the other part of it was, you know, I've been a member of this community for a long time, and being able to teach is an honor. And I'm actually a little excited and nervous about it. And so, so just contemplating and saying, okay, so then we talk, and, you know, we're trying to, because I usually work on my own. I don't normally work with others. Uh, so working with Narayan and then seeing our way through in life as, as my practice, I've been living that because I, pe- I work with people who don't come to places like this most often. So just understanding that. So I, gotta, I had to get clear and say, okay, it's the continuity of mindfulness and wisdom. So given that, then I started saying, okay, so here's some ideas and I put them on, on this sheet of paper. And this is unusual for me because I usually speak without notes. So uh, bear with me. So as I think about this, and I think about the first one, and it's interesting because one of the things I noticed since I've been practicing mindfulness and the Satipatthana Sutta specifically, people would say, well, you're really clear. You're really, you're really clear. And I look at them like, uh, really? Because <laughs> I don't notice it, but I, but I know that, that I live this stuff. So when it comes to the first um, clear comprehension, comprehension of purpose, of motivation, intention, life or situation, that's either it's, it's profound and profane. On one level, it's like, oh, what's my intention of giving this talk? But then another question is, what's my intention for practicing? And then what's my intention or what's my purpose in life? So it can be very small or just situational, or it could be lifetime or maybe a segment of my life. And so this idea of uh, clear comprehension of purpose is really important. And it's interesting because this connects to the Eightfold Noble Path in a couple of ways. One way it, it, it is that we have intentions, and, and if you don't believe me, just think about it this way. Your attention follows your intention. So most of the time, we don't know what our intentions are. Like I said, so the body ends up in front of the refrigerator, and it doesn't know what it wants. So because we don't sit and say, okay, what's my intention for getting up? What's my intention? The body just gets up and it goes. So now we start saying, okay, even here, start being clear about what's your intention. And Narayan went through the inquiry or wise reflection is what I call it, part of what I call it, koans, whatever you want to call it. But it's really wise reflection to ask questions and to ask, okay, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? What's my intention? And if we're going to do it according to what the, the Buddhist teachings are, the no way full path, we have right view, which talks about, obviously, noble truth of suffering. What causes the suffering? And one of the main causes is clinging and attachment. 
but ignorance is a huge one. And so we know that. So our intention is, like my intention is to be clear and then to be focusing. I'm teaching wisdom or the, the pursuit of wisdom. I'm not teaching hating, but I have to be clear about that. And so right intentions, what's that about? Well, we've been practicing that. Loving kindness is a right intention. Compassion is a right intention. Being mindful is a right intention. And so we understand that, okay, so let's just say we're doing something or I'm doing something and I don't know why I'm here. I do know this, that my intention should be helpful. That to counter the mind with lust, my intention can be generosity. Renunciation. And when I talk about the mind with aversion, love and kindness, compassion. Staying, you know, sticking to, you know, the only way out is true. So staying with it, not quitting, not, you know, um, withdrawing energy, but staying there, staying centered. Uh, You know, the only way out is true or um, walk straight ahead no matter what. So it's this idea, and then the non-deluded mind, well, if I don't know what's going on, it can be a problem, or it can be a springboard to wisdom, because I can say, okay, well, what is this? I'm confused, so that means, you know, I got to start asking questions like, you know, I keep saying it, you know, where am I going? If you don't know where you're going, you end up anywhere. Who am I or what qualities of being or mind do I want to cultivate? And so so this this suitability of purpose, because here's the reality of the situation. Most of the time we don't have a clue. I'm just being serious. Ninety percent of the time we don't know what our intentions are, just like we don't know we have expectations until they don't get met. Then we get pissed off or upset or frustrated or saying, you know, don't they know? No, they don't. You didn't express it, and you didn't even know you had it, so how do you expect somebody else to know? But that's what we do. And so we understand that this, this purpose or intention, we want them to be um, skillful. And once again, this is where the mindfulness comes in to bear. Attention is one thing to notice what's there, but then it's supported by clearly knowing or having an idea of what it is we're doing or what's the best course. So even if I don't know what's going on, if I can bring generosity, compassion, love and kindness, a willingness to learn, because a lot of of this sometimes is trial and error. So working with my sports clients, we do mental preparation. You know, before a match or something, we watch tape and we we get uh, the intelligence on the other team. Because what are their tendencies? You know, what are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? How do we want to play them so we don't allow them to play to their strengths? What would happen if we said, okay, these are my strengths, these are my weaknesses. When I go into this situation, uh, how can I mentally prepare so that I'm more apt to play to my strengths or more apt to have right intention and have right action or, or the morality piece where I'm not causing harm or anything. Well, we can do that with wise reflection. That's what Noiron was talking about yesterday. Okay, what am I doing? Is it going to be harmful to myself 
or others, or to me and not to others, or to others and not to me. And the idea is if it's going to be harmful to either, then it's not to be done. But then to reflect on, okay, it's going to be skillful. And once again, the idea is my intention might be to be skillful, but my intention might be to be skillful, but maybe I'm not. Then I have to learn, okay, so what went wrong? There's a wisdom piece, can I keep, keep on keeping on and keep looking at, at this purpose, this, this intention, the motivation behind what's happening? And so a lot of our practice is to, you know, Joseph, I think, talked about this in one of his earlier books. It says, why meditate? To open what is closed, to balance what is reactive, and to reveal what is hidden. And so on some level, and I think I read it in a book called uh, The Adaptive Unconscious Strangers to Ourselves, 90% of our waking consciousness is mechanical or automatic pilot. Might be more for some of us, maybe less, but pretty much. And this is how it works because the way the neuroplasticity works is when we groove something, we, we create a neural net, it happens without us even having to think about it. And so on some level, the reason that happens is because if it didn't happen, we wouldn't be able to be in the here and now. And so part of this practice is starting to investigate, okay, what habits of mine are skillful and what are not unskillful. So even if we don't know what our purpose is, we have this, these teachings that say, okay, this is skillful. That's not skillful. This is beneficial. This is not beneficial. And so I don't want to talk a lot more about it, but the intentionality is really important and the purpose. Why am I here? What am I doing? And you know, what are my expectations? What are my beliefs? All of those things need to be investigated. And so in terms of, um, so there was something else I wanted to read here uh, to kind of tie into this. So we talked about purpose, motivation, intention. So I think everybody wants to be successful or be um, helpful, right? Just not, right? Okay. <laughs> so the research from this book called The Happiness Advantage. It says job successes are predicted by three things. One thing is your optimism levels. That is right intention, Retent intentions that are skillful. And how is that so? Well, what happens is when you're in a, when you're in a high positive mind state, when your optimism's levels are high, your cognitive functioning is enhanced. What I mean by cognitive functioning is your, your way of thinking and feeling and seeing is expanded. So when you're stressed, middle brain locks out and you got tunnel vision and you're just looking at that. And if you're trying to find a solution in that narrow window, it's going to be very difficult and you'll probably be in the survival mode and flight or flight will take over. But by being in having high states of optimism or what he calls uh, positive genius, we're able to expand our vision and we could see options. So the options, instead of being, I only have one option or two options, you might have six. And the ratio can be five to one, six to one, something like that. So when we practice loving kindness, when we practice compassion, especially when the compassion makes us happy, as um, the Dalai Lama said, 
You know, I'm not making this up. This is what he said. If you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. And so it's about being happy and enhancing our optimism levels or seeing the world as being friendly and that we have the resources, we have Buddha nature, we can actually change things. So that's one thing. And of course, there's some exercises on being happy. And, you know, um, a lot of it has to do with the not just cultivating compassion by saying it, but by um, having these acts of kindness, random acts of kindness, especially when you're not found out that you did it because now the ego can't claim that one. Oh, yeah, she knows I did that. I was great. You know? <laughs> and then that day it becomes skewed. It's like, you know, do it for no reason. To do it for the, for, the, for the greater good. It just, you know, renunciation, generosity, once again, it balances that, that, that lust or that um, greed. And so optimism levels are really important. The second thing is social support. Surprise, surprise. The social support is really important. Of course, the Buddha knew that. That's why he, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And that could be, this Sangha could be an expanded Sangha that includes the monastics or can include the whole planet or, or the whole universe because um, I don't know about you folks, if you realize that there's, there's billions of um, galaxies, there's more stars than sa grains of sand on the earth. And so this is way, way bigger than us. And so on some level, we, you know, the social support, the support of each other. Of course, I work with a lot of teams, and that's, that's the exciting thing. I work with individuals, but the team thing is really interesting because what happens is when you have a team, not everybody has to be perfect. You just help each other out. This person's good here, and that person's good on that. Or just like even being yogis, there's going to be days when you come in here and you're butt dragging and you don't feel like sitting and having the energy. Then the person next to you is sitting and, and they're holding the space. And then you can say, okay, they can help each other. Or you realize that you can have your most traumatic experiences and the person next to you may be having them or not, but they're there. And that we're in this together. So this idea of social support is so important, and I know that with athletes, that has a lot to do with their ability to perform at optimum levels, whether they have social support of family and friends and teammates. This is really huge. And then the third thing is your ability to see stress as a challenge instead of a threat. And this is interesting because one of the things that happened for me is when I started doing this practice and I started seeking, pursuing excellence and wisdom, it wasn't with grace and ease at first. It was just pursuing it. <laughs> and then it, the grace and ease came later. But um, what happened was because I did that, I developed what we call strong self-efficacy or resilience. So I got to the point where I said, okay, because of the space between stimulus and response, I knew that no matter what happened to me, I could choose my response to it in that space between stimulus and response. I could choose how I was going to respond to it. And Viktor Frankl talks about this in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, that when we have unavoidable suffering, we can, we can choose how we respond to it in a way that is for the greater good or say, okay, um, there was one time when um, this man um, 
was really sad and, and his wife had passed away and then Victor Frankl said to him, so, you know, what would happen if she went first instead of you? And so he was able to change how he looked at things and because he looked at things he realized, okay, yeah, I can roll with this. You know, I'd rather, you know, uh, she did it for me, but I can relate to her like, okay, I'm still alive, so how can I honor her by staying alive and by helping others and by keeping her memory alive? So there's some way of finding meaning, whether through it's um, an, an encounter with somebody or an experience of something or a creative act. Those are ways we can, and this is the interesting thing about life, as I read a little bit earlier, that it's interpretive. Something happens. That's it. Something happens and then we get in there and we interpret what it means. So I have the proverbial glass here. Is it half empty or half full? That's a choice. But if we, have Buddha, if we know we have Buddha nature and we know we have strong self-efficacy, then we say, okay, this is a challenge. It's going to be great. And that's what I had to develop. That's how I overcame my addictions and that's how I uh, transform myself by realizing, okay, there's nothing that can happen to you, George, that you can't choose your response. Even with the people in the concentration camp, Victor Franco talked about people lost their liberty, but their freedom, they, they still had that. You know, just like I think, um, I don't know if it was Gandhi or somebody said, you know, um, you know, the only time they have your mind is when you give it to them. Or like in program, we talk about, okay, you're letting that person have free rent in your head. You know, you're thinking about them. You're driving your car, somebody cuts you off. They're gone and they're still in your, it, you have them in the head still complaining about, I can't believe they did that. And so that's a, you know, that's a self-made prison. That we hold on to these things and these grudges, especially grudges. And resentment. And so we have, we have this choice and we have this power to choose. So 90% of our long-term happiness is predicated on how the brain interprets our experience. 90%. And we've been saying that in here. It's inside. It's an inside-out job. It's not an external. The out there is what we project out there. What's in here is what counts. And so this idea of, of living a certain way Practicing in a certain way can really enhance that. So purpose, motivation can be from, you know, just situational to lifelong or just uh, wanting to incorporate one of these uh, right intentions of, you know, non-harm, renunciation, loving kindness, or just wisdom or seeking things for the greater good. And the second one is suitability or what we call skillful means. And once again, it's mental preparation. So think about it this way. And I had a couple of people talk about going into a sitting with a positive mind state. The sitting was pretty cool or pretty interesting. And so you can play with that. You realize that what stops us from, like the athlete training or saying, okay, I'm going to go into the sitting. It's going to be great and have a positive mental attitude or have a high optimism level is go into the sitting and, and how that will change or influence our interpretation of what's happening. And so part of suitability is, okay, you're going to do something. What's the best way to do it? 
What's the skillful means? Now, it's interesting because when we do this and it's something we don't know about, we're going to make mistakes. And we're not going to know. And it's trial and error. But some of us think we're supposed to know before we know. And then we get upset or we're frustrated instead of saying, no, it's just really as simple as continuing to learn, continuing to say, okay, what is this? And then learn from it. And, and I, one of the groups I use this example. So if you ever watch babies learn how to walk, they're excited, they're enthusiastic, they just keep on keeping on. Now, and if we had to learn how to walk, Every time we fell down, we'd turn around to see who saw us fall. And then we have an idea about, well, I should know how to walk. I shouldn't be falling. But, you know, that's part of learning how to walk. And so part of the process, and this is what elite athletes know, it takes 10,000 hours or 10 years to become an elite expert in any domain. And that's deliberate practice. That is consciously saying, okay, this is what I'm going to improve on. This is, if I do this, my game or my performance is going to be enhanced. So I need to have that wisdom, that mindfulness and wisdom to understand that. How do I play to my strengths? And am I willing, like Kobe Bryant, to make 300, three, 1,300 threes each day because he wanted to improve his shot? Or that there was one season where he broke his finger and he couldn't even hold the ball. He totally changed the shot in the middle of the season and still shot a high percentage. That's commitment. And that is this self-efficacy, because what we know about the self-efficacy is when you have high self-efficacy, you, you um, set more challenging goals and you hang in there longer until you achieve your goal. And you see things as, as challenges. And so guess what? You can develop that just through difficulty, through mastering life changes. So that the more difficulty you go through, you can actually come on the other side of that, like myself, where you have strong self-efficacy or you have tremendous faith and conviction in, in the process. And this idea that, that I have Buddha nature and I have this masterpiece and I have this, this practice, this way of being that helps me to be able to live more freely and to live with more compassion, more joy, more ease. And so the suitability of purpose is just really simple. What's the best way to do it? Sometimes we know it. Sometimes it's like Narayan talked about. We ask the question, well, what is this? How do we do this? And sometimes you get an answer. Or right away, sometimes it takes, takes, a, takes a while. But this gentleman by the name of Alan Watts wrote a book called The Wisdom of Insecurity. So that's an interesting title, huh? And he said that to ask the question is to know the answer. To ask the question is to know the answer because there's, if you have the intelligence to ask the question, the answer is probably there too. And so it's just understanding that. And so I talked about purpose, suitability, and now I'm going to talk about domain of practice. And I know don't have a lot of time, but I want to talk about that. And that's what we're doing here when we talk about our life is our practice, is making the object of mindfulness to keep the object throughout the day. And so obviously it's going to be more difficult to practice bare attention when we're in activity. But just think about being in the body, mindfulness of body postures, knowing that we're extending the body, we're moving forward, we're moving backwards, moving sideways. We can always practice. We can practice love and kindness. We can practice compassion. 
We can practice mindfulness, just letting things speak to us, even in the midst of activity. So the domain of practice is 24-7. Ajahn Tanzania talks about it in his book, Dharma Everywhere. This idea that a lot of times, we, like, like me, we, we do this extraneous effort when all we have to do is just, just pay attention to what's going on and just letting things speak to us. But just every once in a while checking in, you know, what's my intention? And I had to do that in recovery. Just to stay sober and clean, I had to ask myself, because we call it stinking thinking. If you're thinking about certain ways, it's called budding or building up to a drink or a drug, because it starts with stinking thinking and it starts with seeing things a certain way. And so we start to understand that, okay, the domain of practice is I got to be clear about why am I doing this? And a lot of times when people do things, especially with addictions, they don't think about, okay, if I take one drink or one drug, it's going to be too much and not enough. If I know if I take it, but what happens is we space out and we don't think about it, then we do it and say, oh, darn. But if we really think about it and let ourselves feel, well, the consequences are these. If we do that, and then if we can reflect on it, there's wise reflection again. Is it skillful or unskillful? not skillful so let it let it go but this is this is the domain of practice there's many ways that you can bring extend the practice in the daily life and we're talking about them and some of it is just ref wise reflecting on you know how can I be more supportive because the interesting thing especially in sports is when the motivation is self-centered it's a different energy than when it's for the greatest good or it's for the team and you, you hear people when they play on the Olympic teams, they talk about the joy of representing their country. And you think about compassion, the interesting thing uh, growing up in Boston, living in Boston, but the last couple of years we've had some experiences that have been quite profound. So the year that uh, they had the um, marathon bombing, it was interesting in the sense that when the bombs went off, instead of people running away from it, they were running towards it to help people. That's that we're wired for altruism or wired for compassion. People were running towards the blast. And then the interesting thing was, I usually don't get involved in, in what teams win and whatever, but I was really rooting for the Red Sox because I had this wild idea that wouldn't it be wonderful if on the same route that the bombing occurred that we had a parade? And that we could say, Boston strong, or you know that uh, the spirit of the people is much stronger than any evil that's out there, or any um, opposition or oppression. So to me, that was that speaks to our heart. That speaks to us. Our connectedness is that we can overcome a lot of things if we pull together, and if we understand how to bring a quality of mind. Uh, 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 right intention into situations where it's the intention, once again, not so much the action or what happens or the result, but the intention. And the last one, and I'll speed it up a little bit, is reality like impermanence. We know that on some intellectual level. But when we start to see, and we can see it in our sittings or in our practice, you might be sitting, I know for me, it was interesting. I had more difficulty with when I got really, really calm and quiet and, and I was in that blissful state 
And it was interesting, uh, me being a recovering substance abuser, and in the old days, we used to have a library over there with the offices. And you could tell people would get in the bliss, and they'd go in there and sit in the library, and they'd be blissing out. And i say, oh, that looks like a shooting gallery. <laughs> Same thing. Different drug, but, you know, a different thing. And it was, there was part of me that was, was very nervous about being that, feeling that good because I knew I'd get attached to it. And that's what happens to some of us as we, we get into the blissful states, we become attached to the good feelings. But there's a part of us that knows that even though it's good, it's not going to last. And that's where the unsatisfactoriness comes in. Of course, you would think if we looked at pain that way, it might be freeing. That, okay, this pain is awful, but it's not going to last. We don't say that. No, it's going to go on forever. I'm going to lose my legs. I'm going to have gangrene or something. I'll never be the same. And it's, and it's just nonsense. But this is what, what the mind says. It has no shame. It just says things. Because it's diluted, and then, and then all we have to do is say, oh, that's the diluted mind. That's all we have to do. But if we don't see that, then we get lost in it, and then we keep, keep going with it. So this idea of impermanence, that things are changing all the time, and because of that, there's suffering. They call it dukkha due to change. And so the thing I, I like when I work with my clients and I talk to people is like, okay, we know things are going to change, but you can choose how you want to be in the change. So instead of sitting back and saying, oh, I can't believe it changed, you see it changing, roll with it. I say, given that it's going to change, how can I be me in that situation? Or how can I, how can I be generous? How can I help others? How can I help myself and others? Or how can we make this work? And then this idea, this illusion of separateness. I prefer that to, even though it's a not to, I, I, I prefer illusion of separateness because when you start talking about no self, especially where our center is in Cambridge, where the intellectual heaven there, uh, they'll get it stuck in, well, you mean no self. But if you say the illusion of separateness, to me, that, that's kind of more palpable. It, it's, it, it makes more sense when you realize that we're all connected. And every once in a while, like when there's the marathon bombing, you can see, you can see that in action. It just happened. 9-11, the same thing happened. You know, people were pulling together. There's something about when something happens, even uh, Hurricane um, Sandy, you could see it. And, you know, Katrina, you could see people pour, outpouring and wanting to support, wanting to alleviate suffering. So the reality is just really... Really that the things are always changing, you know, because of that, this, this dukkha and because we have this idea of a self. But as we can see, the body has a mind of its own. The mind has a mind of its own. And as Narayan said, uh, whose anxiety is this? Or, you know, what body does that anxiety belong to? Or what mind? And so we start to get glimpses of it. But once again, it's not so much being hung up on whether we're doing it right or wrong, it's really forming the intention and then having the faith and trust and continuing to have the right effort where we're making this uh, constant application of balanced, enthusiastic energy, like a kid just learning how to walk and saying, okay, 
because uh, Winston Churchill, he said that success is going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. So that's what we can do. We, we can kind of do that. So I th um, I'm going to wind down by just saying um, I had no idea what I was going to talk about tonight other than <laughs> having a bunch of stuff here. And I just trusted that it'll come out right. But my intention was to be supportive to the yogis and the community around what we're doing and continuing to do it and to realize that this vision of possibility is is reachable for us to be still and know, to be in community and to learn how to be more mindful in incremental ways throughout the day. And that what we're learning here, we can take home with us and start to have a practice where we're able every once in a while to tune in and say, well, you know, what's my mind state or what's my attitude or what's my mood or where's my body taking me that I didn't give it permission to take me? <laughs> Or how do I get from point A to point B without realizing what was in between? To start to look at it that way. And if we could do it with compassion, with loving kindness and say, okay, everybody does this. We don't get beyond being human, but we can choose and we can develop this resilience. No matter what happens, we can develop it. And we have this mind that allows us to interpret things in a way that keeps us uh, in reality. So let's just sit for a few minutes. May we cultivate excellence and wisdom with grace and ease, and may we share our good merits with all beings, seen and unseen, born and yet to be born. So we have walking meditation.